Open your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, and uh, we'll start there tonight. We're going to jump around a little bit, but not a ton. And uh, how do you cover marriage? What a topic in 45 minutes. It's taken some of us 30, 40, how many? Yeah, right. (laughs) Several years to sort of uh, untangle it, but uh, we're going to try in 45 minutes. And you just think about uh, just uh, uh, what we're talking about here tonight. I mean, okay, so we're going to talk about marriage. Not everybody in here is married. Some have been married and aren't now. Uh, And we're not uh, excluding singles or uh, uh, trying to make anyone feel poorly, but uh, uh, many of us are married. We're going to get to the other relationships as well. But, you know, just by the sheer... Uh, place in the Bible that marriage holds. In other words, the second and third chapter of the Bible. You ever thought about that? Marriage comes about in the second and third chapter of the Bible. And what is the first book of the Bible about? It's about God establishing the nation of Israel. And uh, he's establishing the nation of Israel. Why? So that he can show his love to the entire world. And As he establishes the nation of Israel, he makes sure to first create the first institution that he makes, and that is, can you believe it? Marriage. If I was writing the Bible, I would write just bullet points, logical, you know, Roman numeral one, da-da-da-da, A, B, C, and under that, all these things. God doesn't do it that way. What he does is he takes families... And he tells the story of redemption through families. It's incredible. And the first thing he establishes here after he creates the world is husbands and wives or marriage. It's important. I mean, think about it. The Bible begins with a marriage, Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And we encounter a marriage at the end of the Bible in Revelation 19, around verse 6 through 9, I think. The Lamb's banquet when he's presented his bride. And we find uh, the largest, the largest chapter of the first five books of the Bible is Genesis 24, which is all about Isaac obtaining a bride. Abraham doesn't send Isaac to get the bride. That's important. He sends a messenger or a servant to go get Isaac's bride. Do you remember that story? That's in Genesis chapter 24. How about this? The Ten Commandments. Obviously, there's the fifth commandment is serious about marriage. And Jesus uh, believes in God's, the Father's design for marriage, as he quotes uh, Genesis chapter 2, when it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus quotes it. Paul quotes it. And um, if you study the Old Testament, the way in which God describes his relationship with his people is as a groom and a bride. I would say that marriage is really important. 
And we're going to sort of over the next 45 minutes or so uh, take a look at some of the principles of marriage so that if you're here and you're younger, well, you're learning. And if you're here and you're older, you're learning. And all of us in between. Now, marriage is under attack. You know that. Since the 60s, you understand that the divorce rates have gone up significantly. And one of the things that happened in the legal world that helped that along was something called no-fault divorce, where you can just basically pay the money and get a divorce. But obviously, there's something behind it. I mean, if what we think is true of marriage, and we know it's true because God writes about it, that marriage is a picture the marriage, the human marriage is a picture of Christ and his church and the relation there too, then we know that the world obviously is going to attack it and has. And one of the things they've used, of course, is that legal out, but, but also people haven't been living according to biblical standards, including people in the church, as you know, and you've heard the statistics up until a while ago, the statistic for divorce inside the church was just exactly the same as outside the church. I don't think that's true anymore. And in fact, in the last 10 years, praise the Lord, the divorce rate has sort of shrunk in the United States. But, 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 time out here. I have a feeling there's been a different attack than just giving up on the institution of marriage. And here's the attack. If you can't get a man and a woman to just give up anymore, and you're the enemy, how about change the definition of what a marriage is? If you were the enemy, you could still call it a marriage, but it isn't God's marriage. And over the last 10 or 15 years, that has been in our face like nothing else. And even today, we see there's agendas out there to get this erased or to get it smudged so that nobody growing up in the succeeding generations until the Lord comes is sure or solid about what a marriage is. But if you read the Bible, Genesis, make no mistake, or you can't make the mistake of figuring out what God's marriage is. Let's just look at it. It's interesting. You get to the Second chapter of the Bible, the 18th verse, and the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, I want you to see something here. Here's, here's the man, and God has said that it's not good that he should be alone, and he's made him a helper. And sometimes uh, some of the people on outside, outside of the church really get peeved about right now. Wait a minute. Is the helper the lesser? What are you talking about help? Why aren't I, etc. You know the word help or helper is a word called azir or something like that. E-Z-E-R. I can't pronounce Hebrew, but I know I can look it up. What's fascinating about that word is if you look at every instance in the psalm, I believe, if not, it's very close in which it's said of God that God is my help or my helper, guess what word that is? The same exact word. So to take offense at being a helper would be a strange thing because it's the same word for, that uh, describes how God helps. 
And so here, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground of uh, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Now, I want you to ask yourself, where and there do you see Adam striving, straining, beating the bushes for a date? You don't. All of a sudden, God comes to Adam and says, there's a need here, and uh, I want to fulfill that need for you. And Adam's like, really? There's a need? And God does something very interesting that shows you how highly intelligent Adam was or is or was. He parades these animals in front of him, every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every uh, beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And many commentators believe they were brought in pairs so that he could sort of say, well, wait a minute, why do they have a helper and I don't have a helper? So once the needs identified, watch how Adam puts on his... What's the thing called? Leisure suit. There you go. Gets his leisure suit on and gets out to the club. He doesn't do that. The Lord God actually causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. Isn't that fascinating? The Lord God causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And God, he took one of Adam's ribs and closed up the flesh in its place, and then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man, and Adam said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, here's the real punchline here. You want to know what marriage is all about? Well, here it is. This is the core. This is it. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father, or excuse me, his father and mother, and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and weren't ashamed, and weren't ashamed. So what are we thinking here? You know, one thing, uh, uh, what are we thinking about as we read this? One thing I'm thinking is that this is important to God. Whatever this is, it's important to God. Just merely by the place in the book. He's establishing how he's going to bring about redemption and reconciliation and salvation and sanctification and glorification. You understand this? It's essential to all the doctrines of the Bible. And he's going to do it through families. He's going to bring about even the Savior of the world through a married couple. And so this is, this is of utmost importance. And if you think about what's happening to our society, if, if you could pinpoint one thing that was happening to our society that's really causing it to crumble, it's the destruction of the family. It's the destruction of the family. And, you know, we can, it's easy to sit here and to point fingers outside the church, but inside the church, it's sort of, not that great either in some respects. In fact, you know, I'm just going to tell you a little bit of my life. If I would say what's the number one problem of the things that I talk with over with people here in the church or in the church, 
it's no doubt romantic things. Some reason, when people uh, are following the Lord and trusting the Lord, as soon as something comes romantically, sometimes us in the church just sort of go haywire. And off we go and do our own thing. But if we're going to help and grow and be strong and responsible in a society, then I think what the Lord wants for us is to have really strong families. Strong societies come about because there's strong families. So here you go. Adam isn't married. And all of a sudden, if you'll check out verse 24 of Genesis 2, She becomes his wife. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. All of a sudden, she has become his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Let's just unpack this a little bit. What happens, what is one of the purposes, uh, excuse me, for marriage? What's one of the purposes for marriage? Just by reading verse 28. One of the purposes for marriage is that two people become one. In what ways? Well, sure, we all think sexually, but there's other ways in which two people become one, and that's all the ways that God has set us up with our mind, our will, emotions, and spiritually. And the two become one flesh. And you think of how intimate that is, intimate, so close, And being able to share and commune together. Because the Bible says when they were first set up, before they bit the fruit, look, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Do you think that just means physically naked? I don't think so. I think it includes physically naked, but I think it's also something else. They were open and honest and vulnerable, and they communicated on a deep level. Because, see, our relationship, Christ's relationship with God first, was that he was open and honest and vulnerable and communicated on a deep level. And when we, the bride, are speaking to our Savior, Jesus, as we spend time in our devotions, what does he want us to be? Open and honest and vulnerable and transparent. And so they're both naked, the man and his wife, but they weren't ashamed. If you think about what love is, real love, why does the Bible say that we're to guard our hearts? Why does the Bible say that we're to guard our hearts? Because I think this, when we love somebody... (laughs) and we're romantically linked to that person, what we do is we actually take our hearts. Now, who likes to do this as a man? I don't like to do this. I'm just going to tell you. The Lord has to work in my life. Take my heart as a man, take it over here, and give it to this person and say, here, I'm trusting you with that. And I'm going to be open and honest and vulnerable with you Because I find you to be not perfect, but safe and secure and following the Lord like I'm following the Lord. And then she takes her heart and she hands it back over 
to me or to us, a man, and, and you say, wow, you talk about vulnerable, but see, that's where real true love is. It's giving your heart away. It's communicating with people. It's being open and transparent, not surfacy and all that sort of thing. And here, that's what they were created for. They were to leave mom, leave dad, and be joined to their wives, be joined together, be glued together, be stuck together, but not just physically in all ways that they become one flesh. They were to be intimate. And that's the picture of Christ and his church. They were both naked and weren't ashamed. Wow, what an amazing picture. That's where real intimacy is. That's where real love is. That's where real relationship is. That's what we're all craving in one sense, but something happens or has happened. A serpent came in and he was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. Now I want you to see something that's very, very, very fascinating. Have you ever thought of this? Here comes the serpent into the home or into the camp or wherever they are. And he picks out the lady. And he starts talking to her about the word of God. Boom, boom, boom. Has God uh, indeed said you shall not eat eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we we can eat the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst, nope. God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, come on, you're not going to die. You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the, uh, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and I'm wondering to myself as I'm reading this, where's the man? Don't you wonder that? And what's fascinating about this story is if you keep going, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Now watch. She also gave it to her husband who was with her. You ever thought of this? He was there. And in comes some slippery serpent who can talk. I mean, wouldn't you have thought in the story that after a few lines of him listening to this serpent talk to his wife, that Adam might have said, hey, buddy, what do you think you're doing here? That's my wife. If you got something to say, why don't you say it to me? But he doesn't do that. So she gave it to her husband and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew, watch, they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now watch, I'm going to have to go back a little bit. How in the world did they know that it was the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day? I would suggest to you that before Eve came into being, and I think this is where they get it, Adam walked with God and talked with God and became so intimate with God 
that when somebody was walking through, listen, I got a little house, okay? And I'm old, so I have to go to sleep a little earlier than some of the people in my house. But I know who's running up the steps, and I don't even have to see them because I've lived with them, and I know how they run, and I know what they do, and I know their patterns, right? I think Adam was so intimate with God that he knew when God walked or how he whatever. I don't know how to explain it, but he knew. Why wasn't it an elephant that he heard? Why wasn't a lion that he heard? No, he knew that God was walking. So here's what I'm telling you. And I'm sort of jumping around. I understand. But what are we to be and do if we're not married? Cultivate, cultivate, cultivate our closeness and our communion with the Lord. We don't have to beat the bushes. We cultivate our relationship with the Lord. And you know this, he was given a job to tend in the garden, to, 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 to help and work the garden, right? And so he had sort of a, a purpose and he was a person who could supply. What are we to be doing uh, before we get married? <laughs> to cultivate our relationship with the Lord so we're so close that we even know when he's walking in the cool of the day, so to speak. And us as men, Adam, we have a vision for our life. We've figured out life, not everything. I mean, maybe you don't know whether you're going to go to this college or that college, or maybe, but but, but you know that you're going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ all of your life. This is a very interesting thing. Anybody here know I love sports? Well, I love sports. And in about 2009, 2010, there was a guy named Bobby Bowden who retired. Bobby Bowden was the head coach of Florida State, and I'll never forget him because, forgive him because in 1977, I finally got tickets to go to an Ohio State game, and this team named Florida State, who I'd never heard of, beat the Buckeyes when I was a little kid, 10 years old. But anyway, I have forgiven him. He's a great brother in the Lord, and he's with the Lord. But in 2009, as he's retiring, he's giving a press conference, and they said, hey, tell us the difference between Kids now, boys now, young men now, and young men 40, 50 years ago when you started. And he said, kids, no difference. Parents, they're out of their minds. They coddle their kids. They don't keep score. They don't let them fail. They pat them on the head. They don't let them do anything. And so that you get these namby-pamby, um, you know, uh, non-resilient boys who continue to grow up and want to stay in mom and dad's basement and play video games. If you're mad at me, don't be mad at me. Be mad at Bobby Bowden. But But what should we be doing here? Cultivating our life with the Lord, uh, having a vision for our lives. And as dads and parents, we can help Our children, especially our young men, develop that in their lives, you see. And now I want you to see something. You know the story as uh, uh, Adam goes to sleep. God gives him the need but then puts him to sleep. 
Just like Genesis 24, the longest chapter in the uh, first five books of the Bible. I mean, when you're reading the story of Abraham getting a wife for his son Isaac, don't you scratch your head when you go, when you read the verse that says, and Abraham sent his servant, but not his son Isaac. That goes against all the dating rules of all time here. Everybody wants to check everything out. And we understand, and everybody out, we understand that that messenger is a figure or a picture of the Holy Spirit as you read that chapter. Isn't that interesting? So here you have a prepared young man, and put, God puts him to sleep, says, don't stress out about it. And the next thing you know, he takes one of his ribs, and he closes up the flesh, and you see that... Uh, you know, he makes the woman. And, we, you know, many people have quoted, he didn't take from the head so that the woman wouldn't be over the man. He didn't take from the feet so that the man wouldn't lord it over the woman. But he took from the side from because it signified protection and love. Isn't that awesome? And, of course, too, it figure, it's a figure of what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ went through when he was pierced through in the side at the cross for his bride. But here you have that, and then Adam says this. Now, I know I'm backtracking. And again, you see bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and you can think, oh, okay, yes, from the same material but different, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. But I want you to hear something here, and this is really important. For love and dating and marriage, many commentators believe verses... 23, or verse 23, is covenantal language. Covenant language. Old covenant, new covenant. Everybody heard of the covenant. But listen, not contract language or contractual language. Everybody wake up right here. If you don't get anything else from anything, get this. Contract language. What's contract language? Well, again, let's go to sports. That's what I know. You hit 35 home runs this year. You drive in 100 RBIs and you steal 40 bases. We're going to give you X amount. And if you do that for a couple years, we're going to keep upping the contract. You perform. We're happy. We sign another contract or football or whatever or anything in business, in life. You're producing. You brought in enough money this year. Oh, good. I'm happy with you. You performed. I'm happy, you're happy, I'll give you this amount of money, contract. See, a covenant's not like that. (laughs) The covenant of God is this. I did everything for you, and you don't have to perform. All you have to do is receive from me, and it's a done deal, and it'll never be broken, and it'll never be unsatisfied. You get that? Now, why is that important? Because millions of people... And it might even include somebody here or listening are living their marital life based on a contract. Oh, wow. You look a certain way. No problem. Oh, you're bringing in enough money. Wonderful. I'll keep signing up. But as soon as something happens where they become unhappy with the contract, boom, out. And that's never what God intended at the beginning for a contract. The contract is no matter what, 
or excuse me, the covenant is no matter what, you don't have to perform. I love you just because I love you. Boom. Till death do his part, nothing's going to separate us. That's the covenant. You see it in the old in the way, but all, you see it in, a, in, in the new covenant in such a beautiful way. The Lord's done it all. You just receive. You understand what I'm saying here? That's what uh, comes in right here at the beginning. Is It's not contractual. People live in their marital lives on contracts, on a contract basis. But God obliterates that when he said, A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and they're both naked, the man and his wife, and weren't ashamed. Now you know, the serpent comes in, and I want you to see the problem here. The serpent, in a cunning way, flips the role of the husband and the wife in chapter 3. You know what? I played high school basketball. I wasn't very good. And I played point guard. And we played in the top division in Ohio, okay? We played against some good teams. We weren't very good, but we played in the top division in Ohio. But listen, I can remember one practice, our coach getting sort of mad at us, and he made me play center and made the center play point guard. It was an utter disaster. He couldn't bring the ball up too well, and I certainly couldn't get any rebounds or make any shots because they would just block them. You you understand what I'm saying. But what's interesting is we were both basketball players. We were just in the wrong roles. You get it? And here, the enemy knows that if I can just get them to flip the role of the family, I can devastate the family. How about that? So he comes to him and he gets the woman to play point and say, come on, tell me about the word of God. Not that women can't know the word of God. Women know the word of God, buddy. They are amazing at the word of God. But he gets her to play point. He says, you, come on, talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. We're going to deal. Uh, husband just stands there in a passive way as a helper. Well, not passive, but he just stands there in a, in a helping way. And he stands there and they flip the rules and something really bad happens. Sin enters the world. And we see something happening in our families, don't we? We see millions and millions of Christian homes where the wife is the leader in the home. It ought not be so. Now let me tell you something. As we flip to Ephesians chapter 5. Some of you are sort of now looking at me and going, "Uh uh-oh, I'm not feeling real good about where you're going. That the husband is to be the spiritual leader of the house and the wife is to be the helpmate, or even, dare I say the word, submissive. But if you read the words that Paul uses for... Uh, this relationship between the husband and the wife, the role in the homes, you 
are going to be blessed and I think changed if we can just talk about it here for a few minutes. Well, as you get to Ephesians, I want to read this to you, if I can get there. (laughs) And it's this. Don't forget in verse 21 that the Lord tells us through Paul to submit to one another in the fear of God, people. We're to submit to one another here. Husband and wife, there's this mutual submission to one another. And yet, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Who here in this room, if she's a lady, has trouble submitting to the Lord? Yeah, you don't. Or maybe you do. <laughs> okay, maybe you do. But, but, but what I'm saying is, the way in which we help submit to our husband is an indicator of what we're and how we're submitting to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Now watch. I want you to circle head. Anybody bristling yet? Don't be. You're going to love this. I have a handout for you. You can take it home, and it's going to be amazing. For the husband is the head of the wife. So to me, it's key if all of us, as brothers and sisters, know what headship is. As also, Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now let's get this too. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the word. You see this? I want you to see something. This is the relationship. This balance here. Oh, yeah, you're going to allow your husband to lead and be the head of this family and to be a spiritual leader. And, oh, by the way, husband over here, you're not going to take advantage of that in some weird, domineering way. You're going to give your life up for your wife. What does that look like? You're going to lead and be the head and have headship in your family. Well, listen to this. I have the handouts on the back table, so make sure you uh, uh, get one. Uh, of uh, There's two of them. Get, get both of them. But I want to read you something for 1 Corinthians 11.3, and then I'm going to tie this together, hopefully, because I've been jumping around. In 11.3, it says this. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Did you catch that? Head of every man is Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.3. And the head of a woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So wouldn't it behoove us to figure out what it means for God to be the head over Christ? That will show you the picture of what the relationship between the man and the wife is. Everybody tracking with me. So... Ray Steadman, who is a pastor at Stanford or Palo Alto, he's now with the Lord. Ray Steadman uh, graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, was asked to come up to Palo Alto to start a home fellowship or to participate in a home fellowship with eight families. And in about a year and a half or two years, there were around 15,000 people in his church. And this is how many times he had an altar call, zero. 
because he trained his people to go out into the highways and byways of life and share the gospel and bring them to church to be discipled. Am I for that? I don't know, but I'm just telling you his story. And then he retired, and right when he retired, he died and went to be with the Lord. He writes this, and it's the most beautiful explanation of headship I've ever heard in my life. So I'm going to read it to you, and you can get it when you get out of here. If you want to understand what it means for the man to be the head of the woman, then see what it means for God to be the head of Christ. If you search the scriptures, here's what you find between God the Father and God the Son. Now watch. There's first, listen to this, identity. There are four elements involved in the headship of the Father. The first one is identity. Watch this. Jesus said on one occasion, I and my Father are one. Now watch. Listen, listen, this is important. And the scriptures say that when a man and a woman get married, they become one. There's an identity of person which is involved in this whole matter of headship. And then Jesus on another occasion said, listen to this, my father and I work. And that's found in John 5.17. Second thing that you find involved in headship. First thing's identity. Second thing, listen, is cooperation. You go, okay, great, we got that. Really? Half the time, married couples run around like they're enemies. Don't you know that you're not on different sides? We're all on the, we're on the same side. And here, if you examine the relationship... Jesus says, my father and I work. In other words, there's a cooperation together. Headship involves a mutual cooperation. And the husband and wife are to cooperate. That's headship. Okay, how about this? Jesus said this, I always honor my father. And then later, he actually said, it's the father who honors me. Did you catch that? There's a mutual sharing of honor, which describes what headship is. Husband honors the wife, wife honors the husband. There's a balancing act. He's leading. He's, listen, what is the, what is the husband doing? He's creating an environment in the home so that the wife can thrive and be all that she was intended to be for God. That's leading. And for the kids. It's not get me dinner, grab me a beer. It's how can I serve you so that you could grow in Christ and do what Christ has called you to. That's headship. That's leading. Now one more. They honor each other. Finally, there is this passage where the Lord says this. My father is greater than I. Jesus said this. My father is greater than I. In words full of mystery, he suggests that despite the identity of person, there is some difference in roles. (laughs) R-O-L-E-S. My Ohio accent came out right there. And he says, I do always those things that please him. So what we have as headship is this, identity as to nature, cooperation as to work, honor as to person, and then a submission, a 
a uh, ratification of decisions that come down that are in the best interest of the family. Isn't that amazing? It's nothing to be afraid of or to be scared of. It's just different roles. Well, marriage. When you go back, we said, what was the purpose of marriage? One thing is, one purpose of marriage is that two become one. In in other words, one of the purposes of marriage is intimacy. And I'm not just talking the physical. Intimacy of sharing and loving and growing together. That's one of the purposes of marriage. But what's a second purpose of marriage? Well, we read it. Look in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be to their own husbands. And then husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the word, that he might present her, her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and well. Uh, without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Is that one of the funniest things you ever heard in the Bible? Uh, It is to me. Maybe it's because I'm a guy. And what are guys thinking about a lot? Themselves. And he says, as much as you love yourself, love her that way. Hmm. And he keeps going on. And he says this, For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. And then he quotes the Genesis passage. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined together, and the two shall become one. And watch. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So we gave you one purpose or one reason for your marriage. It's to cultivate intimacy with your husband or your wife. And you're cultivating that intimacy because that's what you're doing first and foremost with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're becoming close and you're communing and you have this emotional and spiritual love tank that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is filling for you so that you become a great spouse because you're with him. But then the second purpose for this And this one's staggering. What's another purpose for marriage? It's that all the world can see Jesus Christ between you and your wife or you and your husband. Hold on now. (laughs) That puts a different spin on it. Not that you're perfect. I mean, he's perfect, but not that you're perfect, but that people would see the gospel being lived out between two people who are one. The gospel being lived out. And what's the gospel? The gospel is that you're serving and loving, that you're basing your whole romantic married life on covenant, not contract. And that if there's a mistake or a sin or a slight or a thing that happens, each one of you can come with humility and say, you know what? I was wrong. (laughs) And I sinned. 
and can you forgive me? And then that's even more, almost more powerful than, you know, just being smiley and perfect all the time because people are seeing and watching and going, whoa, people don't do what they're doing. What, what's going on? And they ask and you say, it's because of Jesus in our lives that we could do this. You see, sometimes, right, who here has had a day, well, I haven't, but maybe you have, where it's been a rough day in the marriage and things didn't go as planned and et cetera, et cetera, and you sort of lay your head down on the pillow and go, whew, I just don't get it. Well, of course you don't get it. It's a mystery. It's so foreign to what our self-life is. The covenant is foreign to the contract life. That we stick with that person and we love them in action and we serve them and we lay our lives down for them and both of us are opening up our hearts and our lives so that they are all that God intended them to be. And then vice versa. You get it? So that when people are on your street or in your workplaces, they see this union between you and your spouse. They go, I don't know what it is, but something's different there. And then they ask, and oh, here comes the gospel. A mystery. (laughs) Well, let's pray. And before you leave, uh, make sure you... Grab these two articles. You'll want to read these. One is What is Headship by uh, Ray Stedman. The other is Husband and Wives by Ray Stedman. You know, it almost seems too shallow to just talk about marriage here (laughs) just for these short moments. So anyway, we'll pray about what's next, but... uh, Pray for the marriages of the people you know. Song of Solomon says, don't let the little foxes get in, the little problems, the little irritants that can turn so big. The Bible also tells us, as much as it's up to us, as much as it's up to us, live in peace with all men. Is there something the Lord's calling you in your marriage, in my marriage? To just do away with my pride and say, oh, I was wrong. And then we can move on and uh, talk and share and be intimate in those ways. That is a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for tonight. And we thank you for these uh, uh, great truths that you put together in your word. And uh, show to us right out of the gate in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us. And uh, Lord, if there are people here who are um, not married yet but want to be, we pray, Lord, that they would be able to take and glean from uh, these things and um, they would grow in you and uh, just cultivate their life with you. I pray, Lord, that you would bless them in a mighty way. And if there's others here who are hurting from some relationship, 
Well, we pray for your grace and mercy on them as well. We lift this time up in Jesus' name. Amen.